Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are ready to study the word, ready to uh, focus and concentrate and be in right relationships with uh, God the Holy Spirit so that we can make this time profitable for our spiritual growth. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it is through your word that we come to understand the real issues in our life and that these are not related to the day-to-day details of life and the uh, various uh, vicissitudes of existence in this world which consistently, constantly change and buffet us with one thing and another, whether it has to do with personal uh, challenges or national uh, circumstances. And as we study Scripture, we realize that there is a specific way in which we are to look at these events and how we are to think our way through these circumstances and these events that we might apply your word and view them from uh, your viewpoint, from the vantage point of uh, human history within your plan. Now, Father, as we continue our study in 1 Kings, we see that this is one of the major uh, applications that we find in this study as we move through the history of Israel, that just as they faced various challenges and various failures and successes, that these uh, are patterns for our individual spiritual lives, but they also uh, mirror the same trends that we see nationally and internationally in our world today. And so as we observe how they handled or failed to handle these circumstances with your word, it gives us a pattern and a plan and a procedure for handling our situations. We just pray that as we study your word tonight that we will be able to focus and concentrate on uh, the message, able to concentrate on your word, and that God the Holy Spirit would use this for our own spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17, and last time we began to look at this first verse, which introduces us to the ministry of Elijah. Elijah is one of the most uh, significant and revered prophets in the Old Testament. He's uh, mentioned second only to Moses in the Old Testament, and within, uh, I mean, in the New Testament, he's mentioned second only to Moses. He is revered uh, third, you might say, after Abraham and Moses in terms of uh, Israel, in terms of the Jews, as well as uh, church-age believers looking at the Old Testament. His uh, ministry in the New Testament is related to the operation and role of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. It was Elijah who was to come to be a predecessor and the announcer for the Messiah, And that could have or might have been John the Baptist if Israel would have been receptive. Uh, He came in the spirit of Elijah, but he was not Elijah. He will come again, though, as we've seen how our study on uh, Sunday morning 
is dovetailing with our study here on Tuesday night because in Revelation chapter 12, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 11, we see the emphasis on these two witnesses that will appear during the first half of the tribulation period who will be a true thorn in the flesh and real challenge to the uh, to the Antichrist during the tribulation period, so much so that he will eventually uh, execute them and uh, seek to eradicate completely the influence of God in the world. They will be miraculously uh, resurrected and ascend to heaven after three days. And one of those two witnesses is thought to be Elijah. It's usually thought to be Elijah and Moses because what they do during the uh, tribulation period uh, mirrors what they did, what those two prophets did in their lives. So Elijah and Moses are uh, the most significant Old Testament prophets with, uh, in terms of New Testament revelation. So Elijah is very important uh, in, in the Passover meal. Jews leave an empty ta- place at the table for Elijah. And so we need to look, we're looking at him and seeing the role, his ministry, operation in the history, in the history of Israel. He suddenly comes on the scene in 1 Kings uh, 17. There's no uh, introduction. All we see him is suddenly stepping onto the stage of history as he steps in front of the king of Israel, the uh, king Ahab, and announces that there will not be any rain or dew, no moisture, for uh, until he uh, announces it or until he allows it. And this is totally within the framework of the uh, discipline that God laid out for Israel back in Leviticus chapter 26. But to understand what is going on here, we have to uh, go back a little bit in terms of the history of the northern kingdom and the culture at that time in order to uh, be oriented to this whole uh, section from 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, through 2 Kings chapter 2, which focuses on the life of Elijah. Last time we did this by way of introduction, and we looked at the key issue during this time, which was the challenge to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, Yahweh, And that name Yahweh is specifically associated with the covenant that God made with Israel that we usually refer to as the Mosaic Covenant. And it was by that name Yahweh, uh, wrongly transliterated Jehovah in the old uh, King James Bible and older days because of a misunderstanding of the Hebrew. But it's uh, actually Yahweh based on the four consonants, Y-H-W-H and that uh, this is a name that God identified himself with to Moses when he first commissioned Moses to go and deliver the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And uh, Moses said, well, by, by whom should I say that I have been sent? And God then explained the significance of his name being I am that I am because the, the word, uh, the name Yahweh is based or, or developed out of the uh Hebrew verb, hayah, meaning to be. So it's the uh, verb of existence and basically means that God is the self-existent one, the self-caused one. He has uh, no uh, cause. He is the eternal one. He is eternally existing. And so that's the significance of that name. And for Israel, that name is specifically tied to the Mosaic Covenant, which is the foundation for the Jewish nation. It functioned basically, as we've studied, as their constitution. It's the body of law, both criminal, civil, or criminal, civil, as well as religious. So it has those three elements within it to form the law code that governs the life of the nation. And at the end of the Mosaic Covenant, there is the warning given in Leviticus chapter 26 as well as uh, Moses reiterated by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that if Israel were to disobey God, then God would initiate a series of disciplines, uh, judgments against the nation. And these would include economic disasters and agricultural disasters, famines, plagues, uh, other things, ultimately culminating in military 
conquest and military defeat, even to the point under the fifth uh, stage of discipline where the people would be removed from the land that God had promised them because the point being that they could only live in the land and enjoy the blessing of God if they were in a position of obedience to him. But if they were going to be set in disobedience against God, then he would remove them from that position of blessing uh, within the land. And so once we understand that, we can understand the battle that's going on here between uh, Yahweh and this upstart idol, this god of the uh, Phoenicians uh, known as Baal. And so there's this, the foreshadowing of this battle is seen in Moses' last words in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 15 to 20, as well as in Joshua's last words in Joshua chapter 24. They both uh, indicate and prophesy that Israel eventually will succumb to idolatry because that is the that is the trend of the sin nature is to substitute something within the creation for the worship of God. Man, uh, when controlled by the sin nature, wants to seek meaning, purpose, happiness, value from something other than the one and true God who created him. And so man has a has a soul that is uh, bent toward rebellion. And that, that doesn't mean it's some sort of fatalistic or deterministic thing, for as we see in these chapters that the real issue is volition. That's what Moses does in uh, Deuteronomy 30 and Joshua does in Joshua 24. Is he sets this before the people and says, it's your choice. Choose you today, life or death. And they have a choice. But the pressure from the sin nature is to push us in the direction of uh, autonomy, rebellion against God, seeking solutions for life apart from God, trying to make life work uh, without doing it God's way. And we want to worship the creation rather than the creator, as Paul puts it, in Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 17 and following. So we've studied that passage many times. Man wants to worship the creature rather than the creator, and so we deify various details of life and whether it's the overt concrete idol of wood stone or or metal as uh, idolatry was established in the old testament or whether it's a more sophisticated uh, mental construct such as we have in modern times what whatever we're looking to to provide real happiness and meaning in life that is idolatry and it can be money it can be family. Christmas is a time when many people uh, give an inordinate value to family, thinking that if everybody can just come together and everybody can just be happy and everybody can function the way that we think that it ought to be in some idealized way, then everything would be wonderful. And so there's a uh, sense that if families would just do the right thing, then everything will be wonderful. Or if the my wife would just do whatever I think she needs to do or my husband would do whatever he should do or the kids would do whatever uh, we think they should do, then everything would be wonderful and right with the world. And that's just one example of many of how we tend to look uh, to the details of life to provide uh, meaning, significance, value in our world. And that is just a modern form of, of idolatry. Uh, the same thing was going on in Israel. They looked in the ancient world, they looked to these false gods, these man-created, man-generated gods within the different pantheons to provide a meaning and value and success in life. And this was true across the board, whether you're talking about the Babylonian pantheon or the Egyptian pantheon or the Phoenician pantheon, or later on the Greeks and the Romans, they all had uh, gods and goddesses related to particular areas of life. And in an agricultural society where everything was dependent upon the, uh, the crops, the success of the farmer, and that all depended upon rainfall, especially in the more arid uh, climates in the uh, in the area of the Levant, the area of Phoenicia, Syria, Israel, on down into Egypt, there was this uh, tremendous 
uh, pressure to have production. Uh, not any different from today. Today, we're, the emphasis is on the bottom line, the year-end report, product, uh, what is the value of the corporation, and we've seen tremendous example in the recent months of how so many of these uh, corporations falsify their financial reports so that it looks as if they are more productive and more prosperous than they actually are, and eventually living within that uh, false world, that, that just fantasy world that gets generated um, in the human mind, then eventually it runs into the brick wall of reality and things fall apart. And that happens in every area. Whenever we put our trust and we're looking to people or to things or to events, to success, to any of the details of life to provide that real meaning and stability in life and real happiness, then sooner or later we run against the fact that that brick wall of reality that only the God of the Bible can provide us with happiness and, and meaning and value in life. Only the God of the Bible gives us, a real, gives us security so that no matter what the circumstances are, whether the whole world is falling apart, whether all the financial systems are collapsing, whether the dollar is collapsing or the euro is collapsing or the price of gold is collapsing, all of our stock and 401K uh, investments collapse, our security is not in things. Our security is not in possessions. Uh, our security is not in people so that when we lose friends or family or loved ones, we can be relaxed even though that doesn't mean that we're happy about it, we can be relaxed and we can have uh, real joy in the midst of difficult circumstances because we know that God is in control. And we'll see a lot of lessons related to that in the ministry of Elijah because as Elijah comes forward and he announces that there will be this, this three and a half, what turns out to be about a three-year drought in, in Israel, he has to live there. He has to go through the same uh, crisis that everybody else goes through. He has to live in the midst of God's judgment on the northern kingdom just as everybody else does. He doesn't live in some sort of bubble where he has, uh, where he's not touched by these judgments. We'll see in the first example, first situation that he's in in chapter 17, that when he goes to the first place that God takes him, and puts him by the brook Kareth, that it isn't long before the brook dries up because there's no rain. And so he has to trust God for, to provide for him in the midst of the, the, that judgment. And so uh, there's some great lessons we will see there that we can apply to our own spiritual life as we live in a nation that I believe is undergoing and has been undergoing judgments from God for a number of years because of the fact that the people have rejected God. They have substituted uh, all manner of other things from personal pleasure, uh, from physical pleasure to mental pleasure to whatever it might be. Uh, we've substituted all manner of things for God that this, this country is going through divine judgment. And as believers, we may be doing everything right, but we may go through the consequences of that judgment. We may go through unemployment. We may go through, uh, see a tremendous financial loss uh, in our investments. We may see a lot of other things happen as a result of this, but we know that God is in control, and we have to learn how to use the faith rest drill. We need to know how to claim promises and trust God even in the midst of, of those judgments and even in the midst of those calamities. So we're not going to be protected from those things, but we have the resources from God to be able to have uh, happiness and stability and joy no matter how it might affect us. And so we, see some, we will see uh, some great lessons, a lot of parallels between the situation that Elijah faced and the situation that we faced. He is living in the midst of a culture that has... Uh, rejected God. There, he thinks he's the only one that hasn't rejected God. He will be brought up short by God uh, when God tells him that there's another 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. He's not the only one. I know sometimes 
we as Bible-believing Christians who emphasize the teaching of the Word, learning it and applying it, sometimes feel pretty isolated because even among other so-called conservative evangelical Christians in our nation and in the world today, we don't find much of an ally. There's a lot of there's a lot of lip service given to Bible study, a lot of talk about being involved in church, but it's all programs, it's all activity, it's just a lot of um, uh, of the dog and pony show, a lot of the programs and a lot of the activities that keep us somewhat uh, anesthetized to the realities of life and to the absence of any real biblical uh, content or any real biblical teaching. Now, people may feel good as a result of uh, the programs and a result of the motivational type uh, sermons that are so popular today, but when they're out there dealing with uh, loss of a job, uh, loss of income, loss of food, loss of the house, uh, foreclosure, whatever it may be, then they have to have resources in their soul from the Word of God to be able to handle that, and unfortunately many of them uh, won't, won't have that. So there's a lot of parallels. Elijah's operating in a pagan environment, in a culture that is dominated by a pagan worldview that is completely at odds with a biblical, theocentric view of life and view of God's creation. So we see the introduction to this and brings out some important facets on uh, Elijah at the end of chapter uh, chapter 16. Now, the first time I got interested in Elijah was back in the uh, spring of 1973. I was still in uh, college going to uh, Stephen F. Austin State University. And I wanted to read some things about the Old Testament. I just knew that I didn't know the Old Testament very well. And it was around that time that I had um, uh, first gotten exposed to some of uh, Charlie's teaching, Charlie Clough's teaching from up in Lubbock Bible Church. And one of the things that impressed me, whenever, whether Charlie was talking about New Testament or Old Testament, uh, he, he had a grasp of what was going on in the Old Testament. You can't understand the New Testament, as I've said many times, if you don't understand what's going on in the Old Testament. The New Testament didn't just get dropped out of heaven and revealed by God the Holy Spirit in a vacuum. It's based on a prior revelation, which is the Old Testament. So I had taken the time I'd bought this little, uh, it was a living Bible paraphrase that was then edited and and uh, abridged, and it was called the, um, I think it was called just the Old Testament Digest. Uh, it's not, they don't have anything like that out there now, but it was just a, uh, just very short, uh, uh, had the Old Testament from Genesis to the end of, uh, of Nehemiah, Esther, and, and the historical books, and just had taken out all the genealogies and a lot of the repetitive information that's there and just summarized it so you could sit down and read it in a modern English paraphrase and just get the flow of the Old Testament and get an understanding of who was who and what they did and how they related to one another. You wouldn't want to use something like that to, uh, for Bible study or doctrine, but it was great just to get that, that overview that in your head of, of the Old Testament events and who, what, when, where, and why. And as I was doing that, I also was, I was going around this little bitty old uh, Books, Bible bookstore, Christian bookstore in Nacogdoches, Texas, and there was a book there called Elijah, a Man of Like Nature by Theodore Epp. Now, Theodore Epp at that time was the Bible teacher for the Back to the Bible radio ministry, and he was, uh, I think he may have been the one who founded that, uh, that ministry. Uh, they've gone through several different uh, changes uh, since the 70s, he went to be with the Lord back in the early 70s, and there have been two or three successors in that ministry since then. But he had he wrote a book on um, had books published on David and Abraham and Elijah and a number of 
other uh, individuals in the in the Old Testament, and I picked that up uh, to read that, and it was a just really was challenged by reading through about the life of Elijah, and I had never gone through a study of Elijah before, and was impressed with this man who stands virtually alone and is able to stand alone against all the pressures of this pagan environment. But he is also, as James points out, he's a man just like we are. He's subject to the same flaws and failures that we are. Uh, James 5.17 says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Now, it's important to understand the context of James 5. James 5 is talking about believers who are struggling with being able to hang in there in the midst of trials and testing and difficulties. How do you hang tough in times of suffering? How do you continue to apply doctrine when it doesn't appear to work? And the paths of the Christian life are, are scattered with people uh, who have fallen as- fallen aside in their spiritual life because they can't hang in there, they can't persevere, that's what the word means, they can't endure in the midst of, of suffering, and to see that doctrine works. And they think, oh, well, doctrine doesn't work. So they go try this, and they try that, and they try something else. And one of the reasons that God allows us to go through times like that when it doesn't appear as if anything is happening, if God's not answering our prayers, there aren't any changes, is because God is testing us to see if we can remain faithful and consistent in our walk. And so James uses a couple of examples in James chapter 5 to point out and to illustrate the importance of persevering and enduring in the midst of uh, extremely difficult external circumstances. And so he uses Elijah as one of his examples. And the, the phrase that he puts in there is one that's very important because we have a tendency to um, uh, idolize or to make uh, superheroes out of these Old Testament uh, prophets like Moses and Elijah and forget that not only... Did they not have the uh, indwelling power of the Holy Spirit as we do in relation to their spiritual life? Now, they had the uh, Holy Spirit, but not for their spiritual life. It was for their ministry and role as leaders in Israel to uh, enable them in their prophetic ministry or in giving the law. But the Holy Spirit wasn't the basis for their spiritual life like he is for the New Testament church age uh, church age believer, and so we have this tendency to make heroes out of them, and that somehow uh, they were different from us. They look at what he did, but I can't do that. I mean, I'm just I'm just a nobody Christian living here in Houston, Texas, or or wherever. And when I'm faced with these difficulties in my life, I just I'm just I just don't have that that extra special empowerment that Elijah had. And that's just wrong because the empowerment that we have as church-age believers is greater than the empowerment that Elijah had. But we're still human beings as Elijah was a human being. He still had a sin nature as we do. And as we'll see in our study of Elijah, he crashes. Uh, he gets to that point where he just, he just starts whining to God that he's the only one, that there's a, uh, nobody else. He's the only one who's still faithful to God, and God has to uh, uh, remind him that there's also 7,000 others that haven't bowed the need, need to bail. Don't think so highly of yourself that you're uh, better than everybody else. And so he, as we read about him, we realize that, that we see his flaws and failures just that are, that are no different from ours, and so that uh, that can strengthen us. As we study him, we see that he is a picture of a believer who knows how to pray. In 17th chapter, when he is praying, uh, 
uh, that it not rain for this three-and-a-half-year period. He is doing it on the basis of promises of the Word of God. So it's a great picture of how to claim a promise and apply it to a particular uh, situation and circumstance. So he's a picture of a believer who prays, prays consistently, and has dramatic results. He's also the picture of a believer who stands against a false system of thinking, and he'll give us a pattern for how to stand against a false system of thinking and how to do so in such a way that it doesn't compromise our own uh, Christian position. But as I pointed out, he's also the picture of a believer who, just like Peter when he's walking on the water, has initially has his focus on Christ, and then he takes his eyes off of Christ and he sinks into the water. Uh, Elijah's a picture of the same thing. He gets his eyes on his circumstances. He becomes depressed, despondent, thinks that God's forgotten about him and that he is, he is just a failure. He faced overwhelming odds against him, and yet for much of his life in ministry, he refused to put his focus on that, and he stood his ground and remained faithful to God. So he is a, an example for us of endurance in the midst of testing and not only enduring but doing it the right way. And when he does that, he had to well, live in the midst of those negative results. Five things I think we ought to understand just to summarize uh, what I've said so far, five principles that, that we should keep in mind. First of all, as long as you're trusting God, there are no hopeless situations. As long as we're trusting God, there's no hopeless situation. It may appear that way, that we just can't get a job. After all, we're uh, living in a, in a recession, and I'm in an industry that is in recession, and so I've lost my job. I don't have the income coming in uh, that I once had. Uh, everything uh, seems hopeless. But if you're a believer, there's no such thing as a hopeless Situation, whatever the circumstances may be, sometimes it might be health or finances. It might be uh, something related to marriage or or a relationship. But there is no hopeless situation. God is the God who provides everything through grace. God provides, and we are not to give up. We're not to despair. We're not to become despondent. But we are to trust in God, and to keep strong in his word. We should utilize every test like that as an opportunity to drive us further into his word and deeper into his word, to spend more time reading. And one of the great things that you can do, one of the most helpful, encouraging things you can do in difficult times is to read through the Psalms. So many of the Psalms were written by David, some by a few others, who are in situations that appear to them to be completely hopeless. And as you read through those psalms that we refer to as lament psalms because they are crying out to God, lamenting their circumstances, you see the thought process as they move through uh, the situation focusing on that to focusing on the character and attributes of God and then coming to a conclusion where they can rejoice in God's provision for them, and nothing has changed except their mental attitude and their focus because they have moved or shifted their thinking from circumstances to uh, the Word of God. Second thing that we see, second principle I emphasize, is never think that you're isolated, that you're standing alone, that it's just uh, us few and no more. It's just those of us at, at West Houston Bible Church. And there's nobody else out there that's really teaching the Word. There's only those of us who are really concerned about doctrine. And there's nobody else out there. Uh, we can't let our eyes get on ourselves and become self-absorbed, thinking we're the only ones who have the truth. That is nothing more than arrogance and self-absorption. And once we get our eyes on self, then it's easy for all sorts of false teaching to slip into the vacuum we've created by taking God out of the picture. Third thing we ought to remember is that when God operates in history and in our lives with tests, God is the original multitasker. He's the original multitasker so that the tests operate at different levels, different circumstances, 
And the whole idea is to get us to focus on his solution, the grace solution in his word. This may involve using the faith rest drill. It may involve uh, being grace-oriented. It may involve uh, dealing with somebody out of uh, uh, impersonal love. It may involve uh, any number of different problem-solving strategies that we've talked about in the past under the idea of these, the stress busters or problem-solving devices in Scripture. And so each one of these tests gives us a different ways in which we can apply the word to that particular, uh, particular circumstance. A fourth thing that we see in this is that when we do the right thing the right way, the results are not always what we expect them to be. Just because you're going to Bible class every night, faithfully taking in the word, praying, just because you're doing your best to keep short accounts and stay in fellowship, doing your best to claim promises, memorize God's word, uh, witness whenever you get the opportunity, you're doing everything you can do to make sure that you're uh, keeping focused on the word. It doesn't mean that you won't go through undeserved suffering and difficult times. When Elijah did everything he was supposed to do, he still had to go through the test of the, of the judgment that came, doing without the test of adversity. And so uh, he had to experience the drought and the, and the famine just as much as everybody else did. And each day was an, another opportunity for him to trust the Lord. And then the fifth fifth point that we ought to make, which I think is a, a important principle to remember in, in our nation's history being what it is, that when a nation is under divine discipline, even the positive, mature believers are going to suffer by association. Just because you're positive doesn't mean that you're immune from the judgments that God will bring against a nation and believers who are living in a nation under divine discipline are going to experience all of the consequences of that discipline in their own lives. And the way to handle that is through the use of God's word. It gives us a great opportunity to be witnesses to others around us, not to cave in to bitterness or anger or resentment or rancor, but to continue to trust God and to just be relaxed and it doesn't really matter which political party is in power. I know that may seem like heresy to some of you uh, because they're all operating on human viewpoint and they're all uh, responsible for getting us in the mess that we're in because as we see in, the, the, in this closing part of chapter 16, one of the things that, um, that is a principle in history is that nations get the leaders they deserve and the leaders that we get are the products of the culture that we have. And so they get what we have. Uh, I mean, they get, we get the leadership that have the same kind of thinking that we have as a nation. And so we have to um, recognize that, that all the leaders are responsible for this because the whole drift of the nation is against uh, against God, and the solution is not a political solution. The solution is not an economic solution. The solution is a spiritual solution. And until people get back to the Word of God and the truth of God's Word, then uh, there is no real lasting uh, solution. So let's look at our opening verse here, verse uh, one, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. He just shows up here. His name means, my God is Yahweh. It is a form of uh, parts of the two different words for God. Uh, El is the generic term in the Hebrew for God. And Yahweh, the Y-A-H, is the... Uh, the first syllable in Yahweh. So his name was Eliyahu. Eliyahu, and that um, uh, I at the end of the L, Eli, is a first person 
suffix, so it should be translated, my God is Yahweh. So his name indicates his devotion to God as the one and only God. Now, he stands as a man of conviction, a man of courage, a man who gets his courage from the word of God as he stands before Ahab. And for Elijah, for Elijah, God is real, his word is real, and he lives as if God is real, as if everything that God has said about the creation is exactly the way it is. And he stands in contrast to Ahab and the culture who has created this fantasy world based on the uh, false religious systems of the day of the Baal and the fertility cults. And so uh, they're living as if that is real. And when you live on the basis of fantasy, then sooner or later uh, your world is going to come crashing down around you. And so there's a contrast here between Elijah and his, uh, his conviction of reality based on uh, God and his word in contrast to the culture around him. And that takes us back, as I said, to the end of chapter 16. I want you to look at verse Verse 29, going back to 1 Kings 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now, this is a summary of his reign. We get the uh, time when he first came to the throne in the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah. So there is the... Uh, association with the time frame with the southern kingdom. Israel, as you remember, is divided into uh, two kingdoms at this point, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. His father is Omri. Omri had come to the throne uh, as a result of winning out in a, uh, in a civil war that took place uh, after uh, Zimri, uh, had assassinated uh, uh, had assassinated Elah the son of uh, Baasha. Zimri led a conspiracy, killed the king. He managed to reign for about uh, seven days, and then Omri, who was the general, the commanding general of the armies of the northern kingdom, uh, Omri led the army against him uh, in Tirzah, and he. Uh, Zimri burned the palace down around him. That's all covered back in verses 16, 17, and 18. So Omri reigned, and Omri was one of the, the most uh, respected uh, leaders, military leaders, and political powers in the ancient world at that time, respected by the, by the other nations. We do have indications uh, about him from various um, uh, archaeological uh, artifacts. And so he is, Ahab is the son of Omri who has established himself, established the military power uh, of the northern kingdom. But Omri is just as guilty as the other kings in the northern kingdom, and he continues to promote the idolatry that was initiated by Jeroboam, the son, uh, the son of Nebat. And so the uh, spiritual evaluation of Omri is given in uh, verse 25. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. Now that is going some. He did worse than Jeroboam. He did worse than um, Baasha. He did worse than all of these other leaders in the northern kingdom and his, the evil that he is doing, as we've seen, specifically refers to idolatry. So there is a further degradation of the spiritual life of the northern kingdom under Omri and a further promotion of paganism as they have drifted further and further away from being the nation that God had uh, called them to be. And we're told in verse 26, he, that is Omri, walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and his sin by which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger 
with their idols. And then uh, Ahab comes along. Ahab, the son of Omri, became the king over Israel. And Ahab reigns for 22, uh, 22 years. Now, the evaluation of Ahab comes in the next verse, verse 30. Now, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So he's continuing the idolatry of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat. But he's going to go even further. Remember, Omri did worse than everybody else, and now his son is going to do even worse than Omri did more than all who were before him. And so that Ahab becomes uh, one of the most evil kings in the history of the northern kingdom. And he is that because he listens to his wife. Uh, he marries. It's a bad marriage. Omri entered into a, a peace treaty with uh, the Phoenicians and married off Ahab to the daughter of the uh, king of Sidon, who was Ethbaal. This is mentioned in verse 31. Eth Baal, who is also the high priest of Baal worship. So in verse 31 we read, It came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him. Now in the Hebrew it just means a light thing, an inconsequential thing. His, his view of God and of spiritual things is that this really doesn't matter. Gee, how modern is that? How 21st century American is that? Religion really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter... Uh, uh, what God you worship, if you want to go to church or don't want to go to church, or you have, you're concerned about spiritual things or not. In fact, it's probably better if you don't. Let's just keep uh, religious things off into a corner somewhere, put them in a closet somewhere, and keep any religious beliefs that you have locked away and isolated. The last thing we want them to do is to come out and have anything to do with real life. So we're going to generate our own fantasy world and ignore any kind of religious uh, truth. That's where modern America is. That is our culture. And that's the same thing Ahab thought. It's, it's no big deal what you believe. These gods are all just, this is just wood and stone and metal, and it, it's, it's, it's no big thing. Who cares what we do? There's no God. There's no accountability. I can do whatever I want to. It's the height of human arrogance. So, as he, we read, it came to back, it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing, just a light thing, an inconsequential thing, for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now this is going to bring into play the whole um, uh, spectrum of the fertility religions, the worship of Baal and the Asherah. These are the female counterparts, the female consort uh, to Baal. Verse 32, Then we read, Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. So in the drama of the 9th century B.C., Ahab is the evil villain. He introduces the... Uh, the depths of depravity and perversion into uh, the northern kingdom. Uh, there's nothing going on in uh, San Francisco today that wasn't going on in the northern kingdom, except it was more overt. I mean, ju just this sexual perversion in the fertility religions goes beyond anything that any of us could possibly uh, imagine or conceive. It was a religious system that was that just degraded uh, humanity, had no value for human life, no value for uh, marriage or family, and it was all about uh, prosperity. It was all about agriculture. It was all about, ultimately, all about surviving, making money, having the things uh, that you could get from, from prosperity. And it led to uh, just the most tragic chapters in the history of Israel. Later on, as we'll see when we get into Second Kings, is that the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel is Athaliah. She marries the king in Judah, and then through her influence, Baal worship comes into the southern kingdom in Judah. And she is the uh, the most wicked 
of all leaders in the um, in the Old Testament. She has all of the uh, all of the children killed, all but her, uh, all but one son who is hid naturally by Jehoiada, the uh, high priest, and uh, she tries to wipe out the Davidic line. So Satan is clearly using the line of Jezebel, and for that reason, many people think that she was demon-possessed, and she may have been, but uh, I choose to believe that she just shows what happens when the human soul becomes so degraded by cosmic thinking, by the thinking of the world, by uh, the thinking of these false uh, religious systems. Now, what do we know about Ahab? Well, Ahab ruled the northern kingdom from 871 to 852 B.C., from 871 to 852 B.C., and he grows up in what is arguably the most powerful court of the, in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. Omri was a famous general as well as a king. He was able to uh, put an army into the field that would uh, uh, conquer the Moabites, and keep them under his thumb for a long time, and in such a way that he was recognized and mentioned in the writings of several of the other uh, empires at that time. One of the archaeological discoveries that we have is the Moabite stone. Moabite stone, uh, as you can see, it's this is a picture here of its reconstruction, the uh, stone-colored parts of it are what has been recovered. The rest is a reconstruction of the tablet. And part of what this tablet says is what I have written up on the up on the screen. I am Misha, the son of Chemosh. This is the king of Moab. King of Moab, the Dibonite. My father reigned over Moab 30 years, and I reigned after my father, who made this high place for Chemosh. He's the Chemosh is the Moabite state god who is comparable to Baal. Uh, made this high place for Chemosh in Karho because he saved me from all the kings and caused me to triumph over all my adversaries. As for Omri, see here's the mention of Omri. As for Omri, king of Israel, he humbled Moab many years, literally days, but that's the idea is many years, for Chemosh was angry at his land. So they saw that and interpreted that as divine, as Chemosh being uh, angry and disciplining uh, Moab. And so here's one of the uh, indications of the power that Omri had during that time. And, of course, Ahab grew up in that court and was trained in that court and would have and received the, the military training from his father, which was passed on to him. And he was also a, uh, a, a brilliant strategist and general uh, in his own right. Uh, we see that Ahab is the eighth king in the northern kingdom, but it's been a, uh, a time of tremendous instability. You had one king after another, one revolt after another, and Ahab is the son of one who has led a revolt against another. So there's no real dynasty that's established, and the Amrit dynasty only lasts for three generations before it in turn is going to be overthrown uh, by Jehu. Um, but what we see here, the legacy that they have is a spiritual legacy that leaves the northern kingdom in its worst shape, sets the tone for their eventual uh, destruction under the fifth cycle of discipline in 722. It's going to take another 200 years before it finally collapses and is destroyed by the Assyrians, but this is what lays the foundation. Now, the principle we learn from looking at, at this much of Ahab is that people and churches and nations get the leaders that they, that they deserve. And uh, they deserve the leaders that they get. And it's true for churches. If you look out on the ecclesiastical scene in America today, you wonder where in the world did this crop of biblically ignorant psychologically um, enthralled, they're enthralled with psychology, not the Bible, uh, pastors come from. These are not the pa kind of men that pastored and led churches 
of the generations before. You saw a big shift begin in the 60s as there began to be more and more of an emphasis on size and numbers and growing churches and churches became more market driven and more commercial in the way in which they approached uh, the culture and they began to use all of the various advertising and salesmanship uh, techniques in order to create their uh, their uh, markets. I ran, saw a cartoon the other day that gave me a little chuckle as one pastor is talking to his deacon and said, well, the survey came back and apparently our niche market is the people who like to sleep late on Sunday morning and aren't interested in spiritual things as they're looking at empty pews. But that's what uh, characterizes churches today, characterizes seminaries. I remember when I was first exposed to this as a student at Dallas Seminary in the late 70s, and you really, you know, it's at the beginning of this, and you really don't know quite what to make of some of this. You know, you're very suspicious of some of it. Some of it sounds like it might have some value, but you begin to notice that there are certain theological associations with some of the uh, primary thinkers and uh, one of the key leaders in the early stages was a guy named Peter Wagner, later teamed up with John Wimber, and they had their own little aberration of the charismatic movement and, um, and some others. And there were some Baptists and who were out there building the big Sunday school classes. But it seemed to be all about numbers, that is, prosperity. And then on top of that, you had the whole explosion of the media ministries of the charismatic Pentecostals that began in the 70s as they dominated the airwaves and more and more radio stations and television stations were bought up. Uh, and the message that came out was the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. And so uh, even the churches were infected deeply with this message of materialism uh, that was coming out of the American culture. And rather than the church standing for God's word, they were being influenced and reinterpreting God's word based on the uh, trends of the culture. And that's what's led to uh, where we are today, where everything is market-driven. What do people want, not what do people uh, people need? So churches are getting pastors who are no longer... Uh, capable of really teaching the word. And it was reported to me recently uh, at a seminary that I won't mention that the president of that seminary has even been heard to make statements related to the fact that, well, why do we need to have this emphasis on languages and theology? All that does is we're just training leaders for churches that churches don't want. They don't want pastors who know theology, who know the original languages. They just, uh, so, so we're training pastors to do things that people don't want pastors to do. So we need to change. And it's that market-driven uh, idea once again. And then when it comes to the nation, and we look at the leaders, the scandals, the lack of, uh, the lack of integrity, the lack of ethics, that we see on both sides of the aisle. It's not limited to one party or the other. Uh, the way in which so many leaders are, are willing to sacrifice uh, so uh, their, their legislative integrity uh, for getting more dollars into their particular districts and the whole problem with earmarks and all of the uh, extra funding uh, that they get that has nothing to do with with what the original intent of a bill might be. All of these things are just uh, symptoms of the greater crisis that we have in, in our nation. And it all comes down to a uh, spiritual crisis. And that's what we see illustrated through, with Ahab. The real problem with Ahab is a spiritual problem, and that comes as a result of his marriage. He marries one of the most beautiful and Pow arguably powerful women of his day, the daughter of uh, Eth Baal, who is the high priest of Baal worship in uh, Sidon. And she is the real brains behind the operation. And even though he shows a certain strength in his own right, he was weak as far as uh, his wife was concerned. And so whatever uh, she wanted, she got. And he was glad to... 
uh, like many men are. They, they, I don't care about what, what, what does it matter what we worship or where we go to church. You want to go to this church, I want to go, or you want to go to that church. They'll marry and uh, get married, and then they'll go to do whatever the wife wants to do. And there's no spiritual leadership uh, in the home, uh, other than that which comes from the mother. First time that really hit me was in my first church as a pastor. I began to realize that there were more women than men at church. There were a lot more women than men at this church. And uh, this uh, one woman was talking to me after church, and her husband never came to church. And she said that uh, her five-year-old son that morning had said to her, Why do I need to get up and go to church? Daddy doesn't go to church. Church is for women. Think about that. Men have abdicated the position of spiritual leadership in the home and as a result in the nation. That's the same kind of thing that happened uh, with Ahab. Jezebel is the one who is the uh, real spiritual manipulator in the family, and she has, was brought up and trained by one of the best. The Phoenician court was one of the uh, most uh, manipulative, deceptive, Machiavellian courts in the ancient world, and that's where she grew up and received her training. There she learned a fanatical devotion to uh, the worship of Baal and the Asherah and the whole fertility religion driven by uh, sexual lust and power lust and uh, materialism lust. Uh, this is what motivated her. Uh, Phoenicia was one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time. It was a maritime power. They were a racial mix of Philistines and the Greek Sea Peoples, Canaanites, Hittites, and other, other groups. And they had the greatest merchant fleet in the ancient world. They had developed colonies in Sicily and Italy, uh, Corsica, Sardinia, Spain, Carthage. They had an iron smelter in Tarshish. They had uh, ten mines in uh, Cornwall in England. Uh, they developed the alphabet, which became the base of the Western European alphabet, and they even developed a process to use uh, for indoor plumbing using pipes to move water so that they could have uh, run, full indoor running water in, in their home. So they were a, an advanced culture uh, at that time. And Ahab was weak, and he was no match for uh, Jezebel. And Jezebel is, becomes the uh, picture, the type of spiritual decadence uh, from the Old Testament throughout the ages. And when she married, she brought with her 450 priests of Baal, whose job it was to go out, go throughout the land and to spread their, uh, the teaching, to build altars to, to Baal, and to do so, uh, totally supported by the funds from the, from the state, uh, treasury. And this had a tremendous, uh, impact on the nation. And, there, and we see that in one example that is given right there at the end uh, in verse 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segev, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. And this is seen in uh Joshua 6.26, after Jericho was destroyed, Joshua said that there was a curse on Jericho and that if anyone rebuilt Jericho, he would lose, God would take the life of his youngest son and his eldest son. He said, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with its firstborn. That means when he starts to build, his firstborn son, his oldest son will die and his youngest, with his youngest, he'll set up its gates. That is, when he finishes at the time of his completion, then uh, the youngest will die. And so what this gives us a picture of is the complete disregard for God. God's not real. It's not going to happen. It shows the total devotion to business and making money and materialism, and it shows a complete disregard for human life, uh, the human life of his own uh, sons, two of his own sons. And so that one last verse there gives us a just a 
great picture of the degradation in Israel at that time, not unlike our own uh, culture. And it's into this situation that Elijah comes announcing that it's not going to rain until I say so, because God's going to judge the nation. So we'll get into that next time. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that that just as Elijah stood firm in the midst of a pagan culture, we can as well because we have we not only have the same resources in terms of your word, but we have a greater resource in terms of the indwelling and the filling power of God, the Holy Spirit. And that just as he persevered and endured in tough times, so can we. Father, we pray that you will encourage us with what we learn in this study, that we may become stronger spiritually, realizing that uh, the, the reality of your existence and your control of, of history is more significant than anything else in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.